Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Happy to be here with you, Luke. We haven't seen each other in a little bit because I was in Kalamazoo, Michigan at a at a dog show, believe it or not. Would you believe that I actually know Kalamazoo pretty well? I, I, you, Kalamazoo? <laughs> I've been there many times. What uh, brought you to Kalamazoo? Uh, yeah, my parents are medievalists, and it has long been home to one of the big medieval studies conferences. So I have seen the vistas of Kalamazoo, Michigan, many times. Wow. Well, I saw the uh, the something or other dog show there, and I saw the Kalamazoo 10 movie theater, a pleasingly junky movie theater where I saw Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Now, what when you say you went to a dog show, my sole knowledge of what a dog show is like comes from the movie Best in Show. Like, yeah, of it course. comes from Christopher Guest. It literally, everyone I've said this to has said, oh, like Best in Show. Well, it's quite a bit like that movie. I mean, it the one in the movie looks a little bit higher budget than I the one I went to. But I mean, but... so it's it's competitive. Yeah, it's competitive. And the dogs are they competing based on like like are they you know they're like lifting weights, they're like racing. Yeah, swimsuit it... competition. Is it, is it... They all have to say what they would do with a million dollars if they had it, and they all say give it to charity. Is it but is, is it like like are the dogs competing on aesthetics? Or are they competing on like endurance and like? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it varies. There are some aesthetic competitions. They're not they don't race at least. Not not the ones that I saw, but there are some like, you know, do they walk in a circle? Good. I mean, my, my, my dog was in a, like a nose work competition. Wait, your dog was competing? Yeah. In a, in a nose work competition. This is, this is my girlfriend's jurisdiction, but I was there to support her. He, he had a little nose work thing of like, there are 10 boxes and he's got to find the scent. And how did little Hugo do? He won three of his five competitions. You're just telling me this now? Yeah. Yeah. He, he did great. He got little ribbons. We were mostly there with my girlfriend's mother whose dogs participated in some more intense stuff i had a great time i loved seeing all the dogs you know wonderful dogs of every stripe and shade i will say that i don't like the competition side of it to me the raison d'etre is isn't this great look at all these dogs let's have a big dog party i don't like pitting these like good boys and girls who we all love <laughs> against each other i find there's a dark energy with that i mean they're, they're, these are innocent creatures they're all wonderful they're all cute and adorable why compete? Why say which one's the best? Let's just let's just hug them. Let's give them a little kiss on the forehead. I have to say, this was three days long. Yeah, because I think like I think I can imagine enjoying something like that for one day, but I think three days sounds like a lot. The and third day was maybe th this this type of event already has something of a dark aura, even before you throw in the idea of like making dogs compete against one another, because it's just probably in some like soulless you know stadium or community center or something, right? Which I know I don't like that vibe to begin with. Well, yes, you're absolutely right that it was at a soulless community. center. Center. But to me, the dark energy mostly came from the dog owners. I mean, I saw, I saw, I mean, most people are lovely. Most people treat their dogs wonderfully, but I saw a few some drill sergeants in there. I, I saw some drill sergeants who did some things that I was personally offended by. The competitive atmosphere abets behavior like that. <laughs> so it's like, it's like uh, when I, when I was a kid and I'd go to like peewee hockey tournaments and there's always some dad who's like, kid is in house league and is only there to begin with because his dad is like, thinks he's going to be the next Joe Thornton or something. The next Walter Gretzky. It's just, yeah, it's just, yeah. Yelling from the stands. I saw people 
and not many, but a few, yell terrible things at their dogs after the competition. And I just think that's a very dark soul. These are innocent creatures who don't even know where they are. Like, for God's sake, they exist to be sponges for love. And most people are not like this. Most people at the event are not like this. But I think in a, a competitive event like that with these blameless creatures who don't even know what they are, I don't know, there's, there's a kind of dark energy to it, at least that it abats that I don't care for. Well, uh, well, we are about one week out from the Toronto mayoral election, and it looks like uh, Olivia Chow, who I voted for, is uh, going to win. I never count my chickens. We don't know what can happen. We don't know what's going to happen. There, there have been some kind of... Uh, it seems too good to be true. I'm not used to victory. Well, there's some pretty limp attempts at right-wing consolidation. I mean, the basic problem for the right in the city is that, you know, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, wants Mark Saunders, the former police chief and former candidate for his Conservative Party. He wants him to be mayor. And then John Tory, the former mayor of Toronto, whose sudden resignation prompted this unexpected mayoral by-election, uh, he's been advising uh, Anna Balau, who is, you know, was a longtime uh, city councillor. A pragmatist, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that's the... That's... A, a, a progressive who can get things done. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, she and Saunders, let's say they're both my least favorite candidate. And there's some there's some pretty annoying people. You're in more this of race. an Anthony Fury guy. <laughs> well, think about Anthony Fury. So if you're not from Toronto, you don't know who any of these people are. I mean, Anthony Fury is a columnist for the right wing tabloid, the Toronto Sun. I think his background is he's like a former theater guy. So he's one of these like conservatives who's like developed some sort of beef with like the liberal cultural milieu in which he used to exist and is now like a hardened reactionary. Well, I just uh, just the other day walked past Jordan Peterson's house on Olive Avenue, and you'll never believe who he had a sign up for. Oh, yeah. No, Anthony Fury's uh, been on his show. I mean, Fury has gone up to sort of eight, nine percent in the polls, despite the fact that he didn't get very much media coverage at the beginning. And I think that's partly because he's pussyfooting less around certain kind of right wing uh, dog whistles or whatever around, you know, law and order. And we're going to stick it to the homeless and stuff like that. That even, you know, Mark Saunders, the former police chief, and Anna Balau, who are both pretty reactionary in their own ways, are not doing... The thing about Anthony Fury is he doesn't scan as a very good right-wing populist to me. He's uh, He strikes me as someone who's kind of uncomfortable. Like, he's in various debates, he's tried to insert these very, like, Toronto Sun things that are, you know, made up into the, you know, into the conversation about, like, oh, uh, you haven't heard about the uh, the crack pipes with the City of Toronto logo on them? And, you know, stuff like that. It just doesn't work very well. But yeah, so he's he's one person. And you got Mark, Mark Saunders, you know, a guy who's a police chief, very uncomfortable convincing pitch that he's an outsider given that he was chief of police uh, a man who has an absolutely horrible record you know a serial killer was allowed to run loose in the gay village while he uh, constantly said there was no serial killer i wish his opponents would point that out but you know he's basically running the boring typical center-right campaign where yeah everyone else wants to defund the police and also uh, we need to get our city moving again by canceling bike lanes so that small business can recover just the most boring sort of like local chamber of commerce type stuff then you got Anna Balau who's definitely running a kind of center-right campaign and you know she's doing this with a fair amount of institutional support from various people on council sort of former mayors of the pre-amalgamation Toronto that sort of thing her pitch is that she sort of gets things Things done. She has a track record, you know, these are the kind of words and phrases she uses of dealing with other levels of government to get results. So when you kind of really strip away the rhetoric, which like her whole pitch for being mayor is like, I'm the best at having meetings. First of all, politics is what happens <laughs> in meetings that those are horizons of politics, even if you're the mayor of like 
I don't know, dare I say, one of the most important cities in the world, at least one of the most important cities in North America. And also, I'm the best at having meetings. No one else is as good at having meetings as me. There's a few other candidates. You know, I think we mentioned their names on previous episodes. There's another kind of reactionary, right-leaning, centrist guy, Brad Bradford. He was a guy who uh, he's become sort of memeable uh, as he's kind of sunk deeper into the single digits in the polls, uh, because in one of the early debates, he talked about how his best friend, whose name I think is Paul, uh, lives in his basement. And so this has been like endlessly chopped up, added into various, you know, techno mixes and stuff. But it's a really funny, awkward attempt by a guy to sort of seem relatable. He was trying to use it to illustrate the struggles of so many people today because life is so unaffordable. And he's like, yeah, and I know that because I'm a landlord and my best friend lives in our basement. Well, as you may have surmised by now, Toronto, and we've said this on previous episodes, Toronto municipal politics do not have a party system. There's not like a liberal, conservative, NDP party at this level. So it's not like there are these party apparatuses that just pitch one candidate. The ballot will have, God, 100 There's names. There's going to be over 100 candidates, yeah. The ones that you've mentioned, and there are a couple others, are sort of the main candidates. But there are all these other fringe ones. And, you know, sometimes you see signs for them. It depends if there's a sort of like local entrepreneur. <laughs> who's like independently wealthy enough to print a bunch of signs. Well, man, there's this one guy who apparently he's got the most signs out of anyone. He's definitely breaking a Is that, is that Hong? That uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, Hong. Who, who's like, going to rescue Toronto. Yeah, he's going to rescue Toronto. And uh, God knows how many millions of dollars he spent on these signs. They're all over the place. And yeah, apparently like his company a few years ago was like caught up in like a pyramid scheme or was doing a pyramid scheme or something. Well, before we started recording today, we were watching some footage from... You know, there are the main debates that the major TV networks have for the top polling candidates. But we watched some clips of something called the People's Debate that brought together some notable names from the dregs, yeah, from, yeah. So, from the other one. So, so it was so funny as we watched on this, like, right, it's like the YouTube channel, this right wing media thing where, you know, they're like just very earnestly pitching. And it's like, you know, there's there's people that have perspectives that the mainstream media doesn't want you to hear. So we're here to show you the People's Debate and then it just cuts to the stage. First of all, right away, you know, you're in a Pentecostal church. And like every second candidate, you get these little like, you know, 10 second snippets of each of them speaking at the dais. And then every second there's candidate. There's no such thing as they and them. Yeah. There's just man and woman. When I'm when I'm mayor, there's going to be a bathroom for boys and a bathroom for girls. And then, then you get the, okay, there's this one guy whose signs I also see. I don't know where he got his money, but his name is Chris Sky, I think. Oh, he's yeah. this. He's some appalling like right wing. like He's some Pete Davidson looking guy. And I had no idea who the fuck is this guy. And then he's like going on about drag time story hour that's what all these people are Giorgio Mammoliti the rancid former city councilor one of the worst people this city has ever produced full stop yeah, yeah. he's there doing like the the woke mob doesn't want to recognize my candidacy just as they don't want to recognize male and female yeah yeah Mammoliti incidentally a guy who is uh, run for mayor of Toronto at least once and flopped also who last year ran for mayor of Wasaga Beach which is a community of I think a few thousand people and I, I don't even think he was in the top three, although I may have that wrong. Mammoliti, yeah, probably the worst city councillor. <laughs> like, Rob Ford is nothing compared to Giorgio Mammoliti. <laughs> Mayoral elections that are all about name recognition. Here's a man with unparalleled name recognition in the city, and yet still is not even the, in the top fucking 50 of candidates. <laughs> anyway, on this stage of absolute losers and freaks, a shining beacon in the form of local energy drink mogul Frank D'Angelo. That's right, folks. The director of Sicilia 
Julian vampire, the guy who makes those Vanity Project films. Uh, <laughs> he's on there to the left of everyone. I just to, to, he's, he's like, no more luxury condominiums, no more renovations. Fra- Frank, he's talking to the fucking idiot from the rebel media, and he's saying, you got all these out-of-towners from Vaughn, from Brampton, who are using our highways, and they're not paying tolls. I think we need to use toll revenue. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, if you take all 100 names on the ballot... Just by your platform, you're probably in the top 10. We haven't talked about Frank for a while. We got to bring him back. Have you interacted with him? Because there was that time probably like 10 years ago where we'd just seen one of his movies and then there was a poster for it or something on Queen Street. I took a photo of Will like just smiling and pointing at this poster. And within half an hour, Frank D'Angelo had like quote tweeted calling Will a stalker or something. He has threatened to kill me on a couple of occasions. (laughs) But listen, it's all water under the bridge. It's okay. He's your guy now. I would say that Frank's main problem is I don't think he's involved at all but the fact that his best friend Barry Sherman the one who was paying for literally all of his business ventures who was underwriting all of his movies you know underwriting all of his restaurants his TV show the fact that he um, ended up grotesquely murdered in probably the most famous unsolved murder case in Canadian history that's a lot of baggage for a mayoral candidate to have you know proximity to that so I don't I don't I hey, maybe he'll pull out an upset victory. Who knows? He's definitely one of the best of the fringe candidates. Anyway, it's going to get extremely ugly over the next week or so. When Olivia Chow ran for mayor in 2014, the Toronto Sun ran a uh, now notorious uh, racist cartoon of her. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more stuff like that. The debates themselves have just become these like absurdities where it's just six people all piling on against Olivia Chow talking about, yeah, how she wants to defund the police and raise property taxes. Yeah, she's going to raise taxes by uh, 35%, uh, all these kind of numbers that get thrown around. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't want to count my chickens, but I am certainly looking forward to uh, watching some very bad people lose in a humiliating way. When's the last time you voted for a candidate who won? I don't know. Uh, the NDP candidates I vote for provincially have won the last few times. Oh, I guess that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. Doug Ford keeps winning, you know, <laughs> the most seats. It doesn't feel that way. <laughs> well, folks, before we get to the movie, I'm not going to bore you folks too much with telling you to join us on patreon.com slash Michael and us. Well, I am. They sh- And they should. Well, you listen, folks, you know it. Patreon.com slash Michael and us. Extra episode every week. Five Yankee dollars a month. Plus, you get to call yourself a member of Michael and us nation. I will tell you, though, about some of the content. I hate that word. Some of the content that's been on Patreon. We have episodes on such films as Air Force One, you know, Get Off My Plane. <laughs> Tim Burton's classic Ed Wood. Danny Boyle's breakthrough film, Shallow Grave, Ingmar Bergman's classic Persona, and a true discovery from the Tubi Mines, the first movie made about the coronavirus, <laughs> Corona Zombies. Listen, if, if you want to hear about movies that are bad, that's one for you. And of course, by subscribing to Patreon, you get access to our whole back catalog. Hundreds of episodes. Hundreds of episodes at this point. Whether you subscribe or not, do please take a second. Give us a rating on uh, the podcast app of your choice. And if you're feeling especially kind, do leave us a little review. We hate to ask, but it does help with algorithms and such. Back to the show. I'm here to announce my candidacy. Does this mean we got a campaign? Marty has two pugs, which are Chinese. Get some American dogs, you commie! Schools is this nation's backbone. A super sassy salesman sold me Sicilian sausages. More manly. Gosh, I am so flustered. Are you taking money from tobacco companies? No. No, no. What do you got there? Is that a crossbow? Ah!
The campaign. Oh my god, it hurts so much. Starts August 10th. So, Will, uh, you know, the film we're going to speak about feels a bit like a, a glass of warm milk at this point because <laughs> we've seen so many films like this. We just sort of plucked this one out of the ether because we were thinking, you know, we're going to go see The Flash this week. Oh, that's going to be on Patreon, too. We have an episode about The Flash, the new movie, folks. Yeah, we probably should have mentioned that. Don't go see the movie. It sucks. Listen to our conversation about it. But, you know, we like to balance things out on Michael and us. You know, we can't do two metaverse movies in one week, but it also didn't quite feel right to pair the flash with you know kurosawa's dreams or something that just would have been too disorienting we like to find symmetry and balance in content and in life and so you know we wanted to kind of go back to basics give us a classic michael and us politics movie let's do some vintage content now we've been at this for a long time we've devised very sophisticated methods for discovering movies like this some of which involve typing in political movies from the 2000s into a search bar and seeing what comes up and there was this movie the candidate from 2012 i didn't know much about it i saw it theatrically at the time although you know it was a pretty distant memory at this point there were certain moments when i said wait luke there's gonna be a joke coming up i remember but that's about <laughs> it and this movie just you know fell squarely into our wheelhouse of sort of U.S. politics movies that can tend to have something on their mind and don't always. So we weren't really sure, you know, is this going to be good? Is it going to be bad? I do think at this point, you know, Will and I go into these movies uh, with a certain prejudice. Guilty uh, till say. proven innocent. Yeah, that's right. Please be empathetic with us here, folks. When you've sat through Swing Vote, when you've sat through Man of the Year, when you've sat through Jon Stewart's Irresistible, so many of these movies, whatever that one with Michael Keaton and... Uh, oh, Speechless. God, Good God. There's the, the, the one where Hugh Jackman plays Gary Hart oh, and then God. the thesis is like, uh, oh, why are we caring about their personal lives? Yeah, we could have had Gary Hart as president. Imagine the possibilities. <laughs> Primary Colors, a film which asks the question of, I don't know what question it asks. John Travolta is basically Bill Clinton. There's been so many films like that. So look, when you watch as many films like that as we have, you know, it, it kind of pickles your brain a little bit. Now, with all that in mind, I did think this movie was actually pretty funny. I was pleasantly surprised by some of the jokes. I think in many ways, you know, the satire is kind of middle of the road, although it does largely focus on the right targets. But the jokes in many cases were quite funny for the simple reason that this film was not shy about vulgarity at all. And so many films like this are so obsessed with being PG, like the satire is toothless and so is the humor. This movie did not have that problem. Well, we watched the movie together, but we didn't talk about it until now. I think our reactions are basically similar. I think I liked the movie a little bit less than you did. I found it kind of mediocre, frankly. To me, it lost steam as it went along. I think the satire becomes pretty broad in the second half. There are a fair number of good jokes for, in it. For a movie like this, given like think about well, the think yeah. about the tally of movies we've this, just this, we've, this is what I'm getting we, to. We both laughed out loud multiple times watching yeah. this movie. Th this is what I'm getting to. If we're grading it on the Michael and us curve, uh -huh. this is one of the better, maybe one of the best of this kind of movie. Yeah. 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 So it's got maybe a dozen <laughs> solid jokes and its politics are pretty good. And I don't know if that counts as a thumbs up, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll take it. I don't know. So this movie is from 2012. It's directed by Jay Roach, who gave us the Austin Powers trilogy, as well as Coastal Elites, a favorite film of our podcast. Oh, my God. It was written by a team that included Adam McKay. And it's a vehicle for Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis, who play rival political candidates in North Carolina vying for a congressional seat. 
Yeah, so Will Farrell is this long-standing Democratic incumbent congressman for North Carolina's 14th district. Uh, he's a total scoundrel, but he retains the seat because no one runs against him. And he's kind of depicted as the quintessence of Democrat-style corruption. He's lazy. He's also a Clintonian womanizer, sex-obsessed. He also, though, has a certain George W. Bush affect about him, or maybe I should say he has Will Ferrell's impression of George right, W. Bush right. affect about him. He's kind of an alpha male, good old boy, and a little meme. Yeah, he's always having these scandals, and he's always giving like the most politician kind of responses to wriggle out of them. There's a pretty funny joke early on, where I guess the scandal is that he's left lewd messages on a family's answering machine, and then you see a clip of him on TV defending it, and he's like, they have an answering machine, that means they're consenting adults. Also, who has an answering machine in this day and age? Why doesn't this family catch up with technology? Two major supporting characters are the Motch brothers. Who does that remind? you of two right-wing super donors played by Dan Aykroyd and John Lithgow. Yeah, and their plot is basically that they want to do something called insourcing, which is basically like outsourcing, except it happens in the United States. So they're basically trying to control the state of North Carolina and then lower all the labor standards so that they can, you know, bring in Chinese workers to do all the jobs, which is almost accurate, except the actual plot of those people is just to lower labor costs wherever they can make money. And if they were doing insourcing, well, you know, they already have done insourcing. That's what has been done to the U.S. economy over the last 40 years. So yeah, just to pause on the machinations of the plot here a little bit, they want to basically take the 14th Congressional District and convert it into a giant factory that will be sold to the Chinese. It will become Chinese territory thus will not be subject to U.S. labor laws or U.S. environmental laws. Right. And as I said, I mean, they would just like, I mean, it's it's like a funny bit, but it's like in actuality, they've had no problem lowering, you know, eliminating environmental standards and labor legislation. I mean, various states over the past year have like repealed child labor protections and stuff. Now, Camden Brady, that's the Will Ferrell character. He's been so firmly entrenched in the seat that nobody runs against him. But because of a new sex scandal, he suddenly seems vulnerable. So the Motch brothers pluck from obscurity a local townsfolk, a sweet, innocent, naive, played by Zach Galifianakis, named Marty Huggins, who's a tour guide for the district, and they make him the Republican candidate. The second act of the movie is a sort of, um, I mean, I, I was getting, it's better than John Stewart's Irresistible, but I was getting Irresistible flashbacks because it's that kind of structure. Comedies like this all have the same structure where it's like the second act is the two candidates are doing more and more and more unethical things. They're pushing their campaigns further and further into the realm of tastelessness. Swing vote was like this too. With oh yeah. The, the two candidates vying for Kevin Costner's vote. And it's in the second act that the movie started to lose me a little bit. The satire becomes really broad. For example, I mean, it all builds up to a thing where Will Ferrell seduces Zach Galifianakis's wife, and like he films himself having sex with her, and he turns that into a campaign ad. Well, and that's and it's but that's after something else that I thought was pretty funny, where Marty films his own attack ad, where he's getting Will Ferrell's son to call him dad. Yeah, I liked that. Was, I don't know, a pretty good little gag. I thought there's also a running gag where Will Ferrell keeps trying to punch Zach Galifianakis, and in the process, like instead punches a baby. He punches Uggy the dog. Dog yeah. from the artist yeah <laughs> i know what you mean there are it's certain like there, are, there are so many scandals that are so outlandish in the second act that it sort of blunts the comic impact of each one of them as it goes along there's a sort of diminishing returns that happen and there are certain beats you write that just sort of recur in a movie like this so you know these various scandals happen and then we see like actual wolf blitzer or chris matthews or bill maher or whatever talking about them 
which I don't know, maybe in 2012, that was sort of more of a novel thing, but I feel like that's been done a lot since. Just a side note, my favorite scene in any movie is in Batman versus Superman, where there's that montage of the real news people like reporting on Batman and Superman. And I like the bit where you see Charlie Rose at his desk and the iconic Charlie Rose studio with the black backdrop and everything. And he goes, do we still need Superman. <laughs> but yeah, I was getting I was getting John Stewart irresistible flashbacks watching this. I think this is a better movie than Irresistible. You folks remember John Stewart's Irresistible. That's the movie that kept the left wing podcast industry afloat for two months after Bernie's loss. Not, not even. It kept it kept me afloat. I did like three <laughs> podcasting appearances and I wrote a Jacobin article. I mean that movie on every level was a spectacularly bad movie. I mean movie. it's it's incredible. Like not to like, we've already done an episode on it, so we shouldn't spend too much time on this but i mean there's a good chance a lot of people listening like may have heard of it at the time and like will need to be reminded that this movie existed the runway by the way was greased for that movie oh yeah because it was an election year john stewart is back we're all in our homes okay with nothing to do except watch movies and here comes a new john stewart political comedy and yet and yet it was so bad that it just couldn't connect yeah, I mean, you know, this movie came out and it could have started a whole like John Stewart assance, which, you know, I think he's actually done better since with his uh, every few weeks, you know, he's got a clip of like himself grilling Larry Summers or something that goes viral. And the, the work he does with veterans, whatever, is pretty admirable. I mean, he seems like a, a well-meaning soul. I haven't properly sat down and watched his new show, but it does actually seem like he's bringing back some more of that kind of adversarial side that was always, you know, his better half compared to the like, let's just you know all get along and political rancor is the source of all our problems or whatever anyway yeah irresistible came along and here was this movie where all the reference points were like pre-2012 well as i recall uh something irresistible tried to do i mean i only saw it i think i saw it twice but twice i don't really remember it very well i think there is an essay about it in my book possibly (laughs) (laughs) if anyone's read it please let us know But that movie was trying to be obviously, you know, critical of sort of the way that, you know, political consultants ruin things. You know, they come in and they make everything about spin. This movie does the same thing, I think, more effectively, because the problem with Irresistible is it gets so kind of tangled up with its various twists, particularly at the end, that, you know, it's not really clear what it's saying. At various points, it seems to be gesturing at a kind of anti-corporate, anti-political class kind of critique. But then it's sort of also becoming more like, oh, political divisions are something imposed by Washington. Washington on small towns. It ends with something about like money continued its, you know, reign or something uninterrupted. But, you know, by that point, there's there's so many kind of twists ending. It's not clear why money is the problem. It's just money itself. Yeah, there's it's too inception like in its in its thesis, especially at the end. So what this movie has going for it, the campaign is that it sort of correctly identifies the villains. Well, the, the Koch brothers surrogates actually have their own operative who's this, you know, perfect archetype of like a DC consultant. And so when and Marty is going to run, not having any experience in politics. You know, he comes into the house and is like, all right, we're going to put up guns here. We're going to put up a picture of an eagle above the fire. We're going to put a Bible on the table. Uh, you know, you need different kinds of dogs, like all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the film is correct in its targets in that, you know, big money donors are also the people who are kind of greasing the wheels of this consultant class who make politics, you know, completely fake and, and stupid. And I mean, the other thing is the whole plot with the villains is also kind of on target because 
because a lot of movies like this don't even have something like that, right? Often the adversary or the antagonist is just, you know, partisanship or something like that. And in this, it's like, no, there's like billionaire, you know, industrialists who want to lower labor standards and, you know, ruin the lives of American workers. I am in full agreement with you having said that, that I think the satire in the movie is less effective for me than the humor. I liked all the vulgar jokes more than I liked the satire, although I do think that it might partly be that a film like this would have felt a little more, if not cutting edge, just kind of acerbic in 2012 than it does today. Well, there are certain things in this movie, like there's a scene where Will Ferrell is watching campaign ads that have been proposed to him, you know, attack ads against the Galifianakis character. And there's a bit where it's like, the, the Taliban has beards. You know who else has a beard? Uh, Zach Galifianakis. And that's the kind of satire that Michael Moore would have done on the Slacker Uprising tour. Like, pretty stale stuff. Maybe it was better in 2012. I don't know. Now, this is a spot to raise some important questions in the minds of voters. We're calling it Homeland Insecurity. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Al-Qaeda, the Taliban. I hate those guys. One thing unites all of them in their blood packs facial hair. There's someone else North Carolina that has facial hair. Marty Huggins. Right, right. Why doesn't Marty Huggins answer the question? Is he a Taliban or an Al-Qaeda? Are you kidding me? Well, what struck me most, given that this film came out in 2012, was how how a movie like this compares to the kind of equivalent politics movies that were being made in the 1990s, a few of which we've mentioned already. Because there's a pretty big difference between the sort of median film of this kind in the 1990s, notwithstanding whether it's funny or not, or good drama or not, just talking about kind of the thrust of the satire here, or, or even just how it situates politics and, and political operatives. Because those 90s movies are so ridden through with this rev for campaign operatives, consultants. Are you talking doctors. about like Wag the Dog, Primary Colors, Dave? I haven't, seen, <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I haven't seen Wag the Dog for quite a while. We should have an episode coming up relatively soon. We're uh, hoping to do a crossover with another podcast on that one. Stay tuned. But I mean, Primary Colors is a good example where, you know, these films that are basically telling you or, you know, there was whatever that fucking awful, stupid Hugh Jackman, Gary Hart movie was. These films that are kind of telling you, oh, look, political operatives and elite politicians they actually have it really tough the public is too hard on them and that's the problem like we're we expect these people to be perfect man we should watch Bullworth again I think we were maybe a little too hard on it when we watched it because that movie is in a whole other galaxy from stuff like this but then you have I mean the, the the classic text in this genre which is not a fiction film it's a documentary is The War Room by Chris Hegedus and D.A. Pennebaker because that film asks you to look at these guys like George Stephanopoulos and James Carville and it shows them in the act of you know running into the spin rooms after a debate to be like and saying it in a tone of like here's the talking point bush looked weak bush looked weak bush looked weak right so it's showing you the trivialization of politics into this kind of like it's no longer about anything it's just about this meta narrative that's being contested and instead of saying look at this class that we've created of these operatives who exist to kind of strain politics of any meaning or truth who exist to debase it and make political campaigns indistinguishable from the campaigns that are selling you toothpaste or coca-cola Instead, it's like, no, look at these amazing whiz kids. Look how fucking cool these guys are. And I think it's interesting that you fast forward to 2012 and you have a film like this, which basically takes the exact opposite view of political consultants. You know, as does that John Stewart movie, which I'm convinced must have just been written in 2012 anyway. 
and just, you know, it must have been a script he had lying around or something. There's no way he wrote that in like 2019, 2020. Well, I was struck by something similar to this when we watched Air Force One last week, which is so reverent about the president. And you know, if that movie were made in, well, 2015, 2016, certainly if it were made now, the president would be seen as a more flawed character. I'm not sure what the turning point was, whether it was Lewinsky, whether it was the Iraq war, whether it was the disappointments of Obama's second term, whether it was Donald Trump being elected. The ambient energy is such that the creators in Hollywood understand, oh, these aren't gods anymore. People won't accept them as uncomplicated gods. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that there have been various things that have contributed to, if you want, the desacralization of the American presidency, obviously the election of Donald Trump uh, most recently. But I think that, you know, you look at a film like this that comes out in 2012, I really think it has to be seen in the wake of 2008 and, you know, change we can believe in and, you know, Barack Obama's election. People uh, rightly focus on the refusal of the Obama administration to reform the financial system, to save homeowners. It's, you know, total failure to even attempt to be any kind of transformative administration or really uh, neutralize or negate Bush era foreign policy. You know, instead of doing that, it's like, oh, we're just going to sort of fade it into the background. It's going to be quieter. It's going to have sort of liberal undertones instead of booming neoconservative ones. All of those things contribute in very material ways to people's alienation with mainstream liberalism. But I think there's something related but distinct that also comes out of the experience of Obama in 2008. And I don't know, we probably have some younger listeners at this point who, you know, weren't really there. And for those of you who didn't experience that campaign, I mean, I often think back to it. You know, bear in mind, you know, Will and I are experiencing this in Canada, right? We're not even in the United States for this. I can't recall another stretch of, you know, four to six months or, how you know, however long it was. I mean, the Obama thing had various peaks, but towards the end, you know, after he'd won the Democratic nomination, I mean, it was this absolute fever pitch on election night in 2000. 2008 was people streaming out into the quad. Again, this is at a Canadian university, crying, hugging each other, punching the air. The Obama campaign as a kind of narrative that grabbed people, as a kind of master narrative for culture at the time, was absolutely unparalleled. And I think what happened next probably contributed to what we've been calling the desacralization of the presidency, or at any rate, to people's alienation, whether they directly connected this to Barack Obama or not, to the presidency, but to all kinds of mainstream political institutions, because the expectations that that built up and then what came after it, which was basically a kind of small C conservative administration rather than a transformative one that many people thought they were going to get. I mean, there's just no way to experience that if you were remotely attracted to it or drawn into it at all. And then, you know, still think guys like George Stephanopoulos or James Carville or, you know, their equivalents, Plouf, you know, all these other guys who worked for Obama. There's no way to still think these are kind of the, the vanguards of progress. Like the people who do campaigns are actually the coolest people around and we should worship them. Well, mind you, Jay Roach did go on to make Game Change, uh, or maybe he made that before this. I'm, I'm not certain exactly what year that came out. That's that Sarah Palin film with Julianne Moore. I think consciously Jay Roach is someone who admires Obama a great deal. But something that became very visible during the Obama years as a sort of explanation for why nothing could get done was the influence of money in politics. Like the Koch brothers,
matters became very visible. Yeah. Citizens United also became a huge talking point. Both very real influences, of course, but also n- not the primary reasons uh, the Obama administration uh, did not govern differently. But like there was a mainstreaming of the idea that, you know, even even a, a, a good man, even an idealistic man was going to tangle with unsavory forces or have to make unsavory compromises. You know, one of the defining films of the Obama era was Spielberg's Lincoln, which is kind of all about the way you have to get your hands dirty and talk to all sorts of people and uh, and diminish your expectations, diminish your well. expectations to get like great things done. Mm. The Zach Galifianakis character in this movie, you know, you see, sorry, I feel ridiculous talking about this movie in this context, <laughs> you know, talking right after Spielberg's Lincoln, which I think we can agree is a more substantial it's, it's film, a film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, more of a more of a meal than this movie <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. But yeah, like you also see a similar sort of moral journey that the Galifianakis character goes on. Yeah. And so I guess if you haven't seen 2012's The Campaign, uh, we might as there, well there spoil lot, it for you. There are a lot of things to watch, you know. There are a lot of entertainment options. Well, at the end, it turns out that Will Ferrell, who may or may not have stolen the election, I feel like it's hinted at they like oh, rigged, yeah. the, there's rigged some, the... There's some voting machine stuff yeah, here. Yeah, there's some voting machine stuff. You don't hear that very much anymore, that kind of... Uh, well, now, now... Well, I disagree because... Well, I gotta, I gotta tell you about a film called 2,000 Mules. <laughs> <laughs> I, knew, I knew you. I knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> but at the end of the movie, you know, Will Ferrell, who may or may not have stolen the election gets reelected but then he gives a speech very much like the Charlie Chaplin speech at the end of the great dictator and he's like you know I'm a great politician and I'm a lousy congressman and then he just kind of gives the seat to uh, to Marty. And I was wondering here, is there going to be some kind of twist where, you know, Marty goes to Washington and gets corrupted? Uh, but nope. <laughs> Marty uh, decides to investigate the Koch brothers surrogates and the movie ends. And you know what? This is a mainstream Hollywood comedy. We're not reinventing the wheel here. I'll take that. I'll take a happy ending. Lend me a hand Unless you want this liberal Boston command I spent years in a rat hole In North Vietnam Now the G.R.E.'s contained So forget my skin cancer And swollen left gland Oh, it's time for some camp Gosh, I'm so tired of divisive exchange And I've got one or two things to say about change Like the change we must change To the change we hold dear I really like change And I made myself clear So you talk about change Till you're deaf in the ear Oh, it's time for some family